everyone. Welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. First, a quote from this week's speaker, Gail Steckety. When things are inexpensive, they'll buy many extra. And for them, in the back of their mind, is a belief that they need to have things on hand in case they need something. It's always a just-in-case. And the notion that they would feel somehow vulnerable, threatened, if they didn't have enough of what they needed, it would, they will, uh, in their minds, sort of make that into a a serious problem as opposed to a minor inconvenience. Comedian and conveyor of pop wisdom Jerry Seinfeld said, Our houses are basically garbage processing centers. And it's becoming frighteningly clear that he wasn't just kidding. It seems we have a passion for our possessions. We are hearing about this more as the population ages. Now, many adult children are discovering the extent of the hoarding in their parents' homes and storage units because the elderly parent cannot hide it anymore. Of course, then, many of the adult children simply pack up their elderly parents' belongings and transfer them to their own homes or storage areas where they can remain for years. In this podcast with Dr. Gail Steckety and its companion interview with Dr. Randy Frost, we will be covering the diagnostic and treatment issues involved in working with hoarders. Dr. Gail Steckety is Dean and Professor at the Boston University School of Social Work in Boston, Massachusetts. Her book, Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding and the Meaning of Things, co-authored with Randy Frost, is a New York Times nonfiction bestseller. Dr. Steckety, so many people have asked me, as I've been telling them that I'm going to be doing this interview, uh, what the difference is between collecting and hoarding. So I thought we could start there. That's fine. Well, sometimes one wonders, but in fact, I think there's a, actually a good literature on collecting. And what marks collecting is that people are accumulating objects in a planned sort of way, and they rarely have more than uh, a couple of the same type of objects that is that are identical or very similar. So they would try to complete a collection or add to a collection by finding different variations on the theme of the type of objects that they're collecting. So we might have people who are accumulating stamps, and they don't just gather around all the canceled stamps they find. They're looking for different versions of the stamps. Somebody who is collecting even, for example, bottle caps would not just pile any random bottle cap into a bag or a box, but would look at them carefully and select for the specific ones that are different from each other, and preferably try to find the best of them, the ones that weren't damaged. And they'll often replace one item with another when they find a good one that's better than what they have. 
so the difference there is that it's a very planful effort, and people find the objects that they've accumulated typically to have some value. They often engage in social activities around the objects they've collected. So they might go to events or conferences even uh, to talk to other collectors. That's quite different from hoarding, where what is a hallmark of hoarding is the jumble and the chaos, the clutter, if you will, of a seemingly somewhat random group of objects. Although people do, for example, there are many people who, who have many, many books, others who have lots of magazines, others who have containers, people who have lots of clothing. But it's not organized in a way that you can find what you're looking for. And many people don't really have a very good idea of just how much of everything they have. That leads me to the question of the inner experience of the person who's hoarding things. Is it calming? Is it pleasurable? What is the thought pattern? What is the inner experience of people when they are hoarding or people who are hoarders? Well, let's break this into two parts. One is acquiring new things, and the other is saving what you have. So in the process of acquiring new items, a person's inner experience is typically one of pleasure. Occasionally, there is a negative emotion mixed in, like anxiety. Oh, do I need more of these? Or... Uh-oh, if I don't get this, then I'm going to find that I need it as soon as I get home or leave it here. So they acquire in order to find things that they see as an opportunity, something they think they might need, uh, objects that strike them as attractive, for example. The sorts of things that they accumulate can be quite variable, and some items will provoke more pleasure than others. But pleasure and positive emotions are really a hallmark of that acquisition. We sometimes see them as being almost out of control in that they're so excited by what they see that they can't resist accumulating it. The other part is hoarding itself, that is the saving of the objects. And in that process, of course, there's a lot of pressure from the outside, from family members, from friends, even from an internal process of uh, realizing just how full one's house is and how little space there is that's usable left. And in that situation, people try to get rid of items, and then they're faced with a lot of negative emotions. They pick something up that they'd like to get rid of. They look through it, let's say it's a magazine, and say, well, but if I did get rid of this, then this article on childhood obesity, I might find that I wanted to know more about that in the future, even if I don't have an immediate need for it now. But what if... Somebody wanted that article or asked me about it, and I didn't know, and I didn't have this article, so I couldn't go back and read it. And so they create a scenario in mind in which they're anxious about parting with something. Sometimes the experience of trying to part with something is grief-stricken. Oh, look at this old 
dirty, uh, torn up stuffed animal that I found in the pile at the bottom. And it's kind of grimy, and um, I can see where the mice have chewed it. But, you know, once upon a time, this was a favorite toy of mine or my brother's or whoever's toy it was. And so I don't really want to get rid of it because then I won't be able to remember those early fun experiences. So there's a kind of a, a sadness or a feeling of loss if they were to get rid of the object. So there are lots of negative emotions associated with trying to get rid of things and lots of positive ones associated with accumulating new things and sometimes finding stuff in the pile. Oh, I've been looking for this, they'll say to themselves as they come upon something. And even if they don't have a current use for it, the idea that they finally found it is so pleasing that they're going to hang on to it. Yeah, the thought of the loss, it's a way of holding on to people in their past. People, experiences enjoyable times. Is there a fear of forgetting? Yes, many people have that fear. Again, when they uh, get rid of, try to get rid of something, the idea that they might forget that an event occurred, and this is a piece of memorabilia. You know, I have tickets to that Sox game that was, you know, eight years ago, and now I'm don't want to get rid of them because then maybe I won't remember that I went to that game. So they do represent, objects come to represent experiences. Now that's not really different than from any of the rest of us. It's just that we might not choose to save the tickets. We might save other things or items that are associated with more significant events in our lives rather than one particular day's events that we went to. So we will save the graduation ceremony booklet from uh, an important graduation, but we won't save the uh, ticket stubs from something or the list of objects that we had written down to buy at the grocery store that day. In your book, you talk about clutter blindness. Do these folks actually see how much stuff they have? It depends. One of the strategies that we often use is to, of course, visit the home very early on in our conversations with people and uh, ask permission to take photographs. And if we're helping, trying to help the person with the treatment strategies, we will use those photographs as sort of pre-treatment and after-treatment for comparisons partway through, see how they're doing in a particular area. When they look at the photographs, we, we have a number of people who are a little horrified when they see the photographs of their place because somehow the photograph captures it objectively in a way that they're not able to experience when they're in their own home amidst their stuff. And that is a form, I suppose, of clutter blindness, where they just don't see it around them. They move as if it's always that way. And again, this certainly has its roots in ordinary experience. Most of us have, on an everyday basis, some parts of our homes are not necessarily super neat or perhaps decorated quite the way we would want if we had the money and the time to do it the way we'd like. 
But we get used to it and we stop noticing something until someone arrives and says, oh, and then makes a comment about some object in the home. And it's as if, you know, we haven't been noticing it for all these months because we just left it there over in the corner and forgot that it was there. But, and a new person sees it with new eyes. So I think this is not necessarily an unusual experience. And people have to accommodate to the problem that they have. So the best way to accommodate is to kind of convince yourself that nothing is really out of the ordinary and you stop noticing as much. If you always noticed in the same way every day, you probably couldn't tolerate it as well. When the house is so full that you only have a tiny bit of room on your bed, it's hard to understand how that couldn't go unnoticed. Well, that's true. They certainly notice it. But like everything, we do get used to things. So I'm sure you've been in a situation where I remember I used to live where the train, the trolley track, went right in front of my home. And initially, when I first moved there, I had trouble sleeping because I would hear that trolley every time it went by. And after a while, you get used to it and you don't notice it anymore, even though it's still annoying and new guests would have trouble sleeping. So we adapt to our environment uh, when we need to. And, I, you know, again, I think that's a... A human trait, it works for most of us. In some ways, it probably works against people who have a serious hoarding problem. If they could clean it up easily, they would certainly long since have done it by now. So the fact that they're still living amidst it means that something's amiss and they're not able to process what they need to process in order to change it. It seems that there are more and more hoarders all the time, or at least we're hearing about them. Is that true? Has the prevalence of hoarders increased over the last decade or two? We have no idea because we have no numbers from before very recent times. Prevalence studies have only been done in the last, oh, five years. And so we just don't have information from before that about the prevalence. Didn't anybody notice or think it was significant? I'm just amazed at that. I don't think we had a very good idea that it was, in fact, a mental health problem and a fairly complicated one. We have thought of hoarding as a symptom of obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, like having to be very punctual and having to follow the rules perfectly and so forth. Hoarding was thought to be just part of that personality style. And we also thought of hoarding as being kind of a a symptom of obsessive-compulsive disorder, like washing or cleaning, um, putting things in order, having to do things repeatedly. It got lumped in with that group of items. But in truth, it doesn't fit very well into either of those categories. And so it's never been its own condition that caught our attention. And I think it just has not been studied. Before we began our work uh, in the middle 1990s, uh, there's very, very little written about hoarding. Why is it not a symptom of OCD? First of all, it doesn't fit well into the diagnostic criteria. So obsessions are intrusive thoughts, images, and impulses 
that are disturbing to people. But for hoarding, there isn't really a particular thought, image, or impulse that is disturbing. And compulsions are behaviors or mental actions that people do to undo the distress associated with the obsession. They try to make themselves feel better after they've had an obsessive thought or image or impulse. It's not clear what the rituals are in hoarding. In hoarding, instead, people acquire too much. They have difficulty making decisions to get rid of things, difficulty discarding, if you will. And that results in an accumulation of a large amount of clutter. So the symptoms of hoarding are not a good match for the definition of obsessive-compulsive disorder. And then in addition, when you recruit people for one condition versus another. So if we recruit people for hoarding problems and we don't mention anything at all about OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, we're going to find that a relatively small portion, somewhere around 15, 18% of people who hoard have other OCD symptoms. But in fact, they have much higher rates of different disorders like depression, which can approach 50% of the group. They also have social phobia at rates around 25 or 30%, and they have generalized anxiety disorder at similar rates around 30%. So they're much more likely to have other conditions more commonly than they have OCD. We're in the middle of an interview with Gail Steckety, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. Is there an element of impulse control disorder there? In other words, I see this thing and I have to have it. Probably there's some truth to that. The impulses don't aren't particularly dangerous, They, but they do see things, and they often seem to have a lot of sensory interest in objects. They want to touch them, feel them, sometimes smell, and especially look at them. And it's possible, and then following that, they seem to want to own it, to have to have it in the home. Is that an impulse control disorder like kleptomania, stealing, for example, or like gambling? hard to know. Do people get a high? Sometimes when you watch people who are uh, acquiring things, they do get excited about what they're acquiring, and that looks like impulse control problems. But it's not clear that it fits neatly into that kind of grouping either. Developmentally, how early would this start? I mean, would this begin in childhood where children get it and they start to say, mine, this is mine, you can't have it, it's mine. Does it start with that kind of a concept? Well, I think then you'd have uh, nearly 100% of the children <laughs> <laughs> in, in among the hoarders. So, no, I don't think that that's uh, the source of it. That's a very, very common childhood trait. No, I think that it does begin in childhood, uh, but typically more in the teenage years, the early to later teen years, when people begin to realize that they are different from their peers in having a great deal of difficulty parting with objects. Once they own something, they can't let go of it. 
I suspect they're also showing the hallmark traits of being indecisive. Do I need it or don't I? Can I use it or, or can't I? Will I regret giving it up or not? There's a lot of indecision associated with this problem. But in the teenage years, we don't usually see the level of clutter that we see later in life. That usually doesn't really begin until the 30s, and then it gets quite a bit worse until by the, the early 50s in age, people begin to have quite seriously cluttered homes. So you wouldn't notice it for 10 or 20 years, perhaps. It might yeah. just seem a little strange. Friends and family would know that you have issues about objects, and you might begin to accumulate things more than others do, but often when we're young, we don't have very much money to buy things. Um, we don't have space often because we're moving from you know one small space. Usually, first, it's the bedroom in our parents' home, which we might be sharing with people, and so the parents have control over that space. And then we move to college where you're also sharing it or you're out in the working world, but you're often sharing homes. And you don't tend to accumulate as much until you're, you have more income and you are freer to control the space that you live in. And then it can start to come out in space. How culturally unique is this to the Western world do you see hoarding in, in third world countries or real poverty? Is this a cultural issue as well? There is some evidence that hoarding probably crosses cultures and crosses income levels. But there are some cultures in which the number of objects that one can own is really quite small. And so those cultures may be much better protected from it because they're not exposed to the, you know, some of the sources of the problem you have to be able to accumulate things. And if there isn't anything to accumulate, then that almost by definition is going to restrain the culture from having a big problem with hoarding. At the moment, we are seeing it mainly in Western cultures. It does raise a question of whether or not our marketing, advertising, the availability of cheap goods is making it more of a problem in our cultures. We also have a kind of a cultural ethic in which owning things, people are proud to own things. But that does cross cultures. So I'm not sure that's unique to us. I was just wondering about recycling. It seems to me recycling really gives a cultural permission to hoard things. And also things like the people who do the super couponing, that they have all these coupons and double and triple and they can go and they have their houses are filled with 25 boxes of detergent or something, you know. They, they've all gotten on sale. They've had to have it. Yeah, and that might encourage some of this behavior, uh, but I don't think it's the source of it. I think that uh, there are many people who hoard who do accumulate multiples of objects, and they will bring home, if they're staying in a hotel, they'll bring all the little goodies that are left in the bathrooms and take them home with them. They will buy extra things when things are inexpensive, they'll buy many extra. And for them, in the back of their mind, is a belief that they need to have things on hand in case they need something. It's always a just-in-case. And the notion that they would feel somehow vulnerable, threatened, if they didn't have enough of what they needed, it would, they will, uh, in their minds, sort of make that into a, 
a serious problem as opposed to a minor inconvenience. Recycling is something that people who hoard and are trying to give up some of the accumulation and some of the clutter often feel better about being able to recycle objects than if they have to throw it in the trash. So in many ways, I think our current recycling efforts are probably helpful to them. Although now and again, you'll find people who keep trying to recycle things that actually are trash. <laughs> and they just can't grasp the notion that this is really not useful anymore to anyone at any time. That's a hard thing for people to adjust to. I've seen in the on the television show, of course, people sort of stand there with a piece of paper that's meaningless, but they can't seem to let it go. And it, it's even if they were to recycle the paper, that it would it, it's so difficult. Often these are pieces of paper that have something written on them. And it seems as though almost the act of writing on it means that part of you is transferred to the paper. So there is a self-identification, as if they define oneself. Owning this is who I am, and getting rid of this object is losing part of myself. And so, and that certainly creates a very strong emotional reaction to trying to discard things. People are very upset and struggle very hard with it. In terms of causation, is there a hereditary component or a genetic component? Is it turned on by a gene or is a gene turned on by stress or something? How does that, how are they understanding, how are you uh, understanding this? I'm not a geneticist. Uh, but from my reading of the literature, there are indeed uh, genetic linkages here that are pretty well established at this point, but they're not entirely clear yet on exactly what genes and what loci on those genes. So they're still working on understanding it, but they can certainly demonstrate that it is passed down within families, uh, and that appears to be pretty consistent across all of the studies. We also find anecdotally that when we are working with someone who has a hoarding problem and we come to be talking to their family members, we have to keep in mind that a number of those family members may very well have a hoarding problem themselves. We often find this. So it does indeed run in families and from that point of view makes it a bit on the challenging side. What we don't understand yet is what, it, what is inherited. Yes, we inherit clutter, but <laughs> not in the way the hoarder accumulates it. But what do we inherit? Do we inherit indecision? Uh, do we inherit something about attraction to objects or uh, some other aspect of this process? I think we don't know yet. Because it could be imitative behavior, I mean, just sort of learned behavior. It could be. But I think we're pretty confident at this point, and I know the geneticists are confident, that it's more than that. Really? What would lead them to think that? I, I find that fascinating. When they track the linkages in the genetic studies, many of these people are not necessarily growing up in the home where they were with the person with hoarding. And so as long as you can establish that people with similar genetic lines are experiencing the same problem, but we're not living together, 
then you can't just argue that it's a living together. I see. What about the neurology? Are brain imaging studies showing anything in the brains of hoarders? There are. Again, that is not my area of expertise, but a number of studies have been done that do suggest that there are certain parts of the brain that are particularly affected. Uh, We have a lot more work to do to understand exactly where and how that works. Uh, The areas of the brain that are affected are somewhat different than those for uh, the OCD population, again, suggesting that these are different conditions. But what they overlap with and how to understand the circuitry is going to take any number of more studies and probably better methods to figure out. And then there's the attention to detail that I've been reading about and seeing on the TV, you know, that they'll notice some tiny little thing and think, oh, I could make something beautiful out of this. Now, that's a lovely quality, I guess. It is. We do see quite a number of people who have either an artistic bent or a craftsperson bent. They do seem to enjoy very much looking at objects and thinking about what they could do with them. In our book, Stuff, we describe Irene, who was saving many things because she thought they would be useful for her son's teacher, for example, even though she had never met the art teacher and had never had a conversation about this topic. But in her mind, uh, you know, empty rolls of toilet paper were a really good thing to save because you never knew what you could do with those. Uh, And I'm sure the same is true for for many, many other objects. What is uh, a bit on the heartbreaking side is that we've seen many homes where someone has accumulated many objects. For example, someone who does crafts has... Uh, gathered together many of the sewing type of items or knitting or stitching or whatever, but then has no space left in order to be able to ever work on the project. And then there's the organizing that seems like there's a deficit. As you say, the difference between collectors and hoarders, the collectors organize things. Yes, they do. They often display their objects so that other people can see them, and they're quite proud to do that. Uh, It seems to us, and there's some good evidence uh, coming in from some of the cognitive studies, that people people with hoarding do have significant problems organizing objects. They tend to make many more categories for the same number of objects as an ordinary person would. Uh, which means that they tend to be seeing the uniqueness in each object, which is, again, a kind of a creative sign, uh, and therefore create categories with very few items in them instead of lumping things together. They're splitters instead of lumpers, if you will. Sort of like tree, 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 instead of forest. Uh, Yes, but of course it's maple, oak, uh, etc., instead of forest. So each tree can be its own tree, and they wouldn't lump the maples and the oaks together because one has a different kind of a bark than the other one does. And so the fact that they've all got trunks, somehow they've missed that point. Oh, boy. Do the types of things that get hoarded indicate anything? For instance, people who hoard paper clips or who hoard newspaper articles or journal articles, which is my uh, particular problem, but does that indicate anything? Animals, for instance, also. Well, 
I think we don't really know whether the objects mean anything in particular about the person. I think we can all speculate that people who save reading matter are generally very interested in reading. You know, that's pretty obvious. And so they may have more interest in information, they are more curious perhaps, and so forth. And they do often spend quite a bit of time reading, although they rarely are able to read through sufficiently. They're often very perfectionistic about trying to read something thoroughly from cover to cover when that might not be called for. Animal hoarding, we're not really sure very much about that. We've only done a few studies on animal hoarding because it is, in fact, quite difficult to study. And we're not sure how closely related to hoarding of objects it is. We had thought that animal people who hoard animals often did also have clutter. But a recent study we did didn't make any particular linkage between the two. What we do know is that people who hoard animals often live under very difficult, sometimes squalid conditions. So the home is often very messy. It's almost always smelly because they're not cleaning up after their animals adequately or able to take care of them adequately, sometimes because they simply have too many and it's overwhelmed their financial capacity and the time they have available to work with them. Are these folks psychotic? I don't think I would say that about them, but there is some failure to recognize that what is happening is actually harmful to the animals. They do not seem to process that information well. So I think we're pretty confident that there is a mental health problem here, but exactly what is wrong, I don't think we know yet. Somebody wanted me to ask about ADHD and whether hoarding is a type of ADHD, sort of an inattentive attention deficit disorder, and it sounds like that it, it could be. Yes, I think we, are, we believe that that is connected, but not in all cases. So when we go in and ask people about their general ability to pay attention, to stay on task, to accomplish tasks, and so forth, about 20 or 25% have a significant problem with that and would qualify for the diagnostic part of attention deficit disorder. When we study it, we don't usually find that they're hyperactive. So they're not ADHD, they're ADD, attention deficit disorder, more than the hyperactivity. But again, it's, it's still less than half of the group of people that we see that seem to have this problem. This is a terrible question to, to ask you, but are they likable? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because it seems so repellent. Uh, well, it, the home is not a home that you would want to spend a lot of time in, I'll that. And sometimes um, the home can be overwhelming if there's a great deal of clutter and it's impossible to clean. The home can be overwhelming uh, in terms of smell, odor, etc. But many of the people who hoard are, in fact, quite friendly, quite delightful people. They're often curious and interesting people. They know a lot. They can be fun to be around. Uh, you just don't want to spend a lot of time in the home. <laughs> <laughs> don't either at that point because uh, they spend a lot of time outside the home. There's another whole group, though, that I think who are socially uncomfortable. And I don't say that they are not likable, but only that they are 
either anxious around other people or don't seem to be very good observers of other people's interests and concerns and therefore don't make very good company. They're not as empathic as we might like. But that's probably not the majority of people who have a hoarding problem. So is there a continuum, let's say, from hoarding light to hoarding severe? Oh, absolutely. That's true of any mental health problem. We, uh, Although we try to call mental health problems like we do medical problems, where you either have a disease or you don't, it doesn't quite work like that because we all have stuff. Every one of us owns things. And the question is, at what point do we own too much stuff? And it's taking over the available space. So we typically try to mark that in some significant way so we can say this person has a hoarding disorder and this person doesn't. But there are a number of people who fit in what we would call a subclinical level where they have hallmarks of hoarding but not yet severe enough clutter, not yet a big enough problem with discarding or acquiring, and they're not as distressed or impaired as someone who would qualify for hoarding disorder. What would you like therapists to know as they assess people to see if there is a problem with hoarding? For clinicians, I think the important issue is if they're trying to provide treatment, the assessment needs to look for the points of opportunity to help the person get through the hoarding problem. That is, what are the access points? What are the values and goals in particular that that person has that will help them stay focused on the task at hand, which is, of course, going to be a task of getting rid of things and coming to terms with some strong beliefs and strong emotions that make it very difficult for them to make those discarding decisions. So I think in the initial assessment, we're looking for where do we start the treatment, what rooms matter most to the person, what room will be the easiest to work on, and so we might start there, but it is also important to the person to do that so they can see their progress. That's the sort of thing that a clinician will need to pay close attention to. Dr. Steckety, is there anything else that you would like to add before we close the interview? No, I think I've covered a, a good bit of it. Yes, you certainly have. And I, I must say, too, I really enjoyed your book, Stuff. It reads like a novel. It's a very fast read. It was fascinating. It, it's a terrific, terrific book. And congratulations. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. That was Dr. Gail Steckety, and I'm Barbara Alexander. Here's what's on tap for our next podcast. It's just so amazing that there's so many people who are these severe hoarders. Well, that's right. And and the, the epidemiological estimates right now range from anywhere from 2 to 6% of the population. And uh, that's really enormous. Uh, when, uh, hoarding was originally thought to be sort of a subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder, but uh, it's clear now that it's, that it's not, that it's something quite different. And if you look at the frequency with which it occurs, obsessive compulsive disorder occurs somewhere between 1% and 2.5% of the population. But hoarding looks like it's um, up closer to double that. 
So don't miss it. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.